0: Father, indeed, teach us how to pray. Teach us what it means to be people who pray. Make us like Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. When you examine your life, do you like where you are? Or do you want more? Is there something about life that you wish were different? Maybe you'd like to have a greater sense of peace or to be more loving and gentle. Maybe you'd like to, to experience more of the, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, self-control. You read about people of great faith. You think about people you know of great faith. You say to yourself, I I wish I were more like them. I wish I had the characteristics in my life that I see in their life, and I'm not sure it's in me the same way. If you ever feel that way, which I think most of us do, the next question is how do we get to that point? What is it that that allows us to be so filled by the Spirit that, that we become like those people we admire, that we we become known by the fruit of the Spirit? That people can see the Spirit of God in us, in our attitudes and our actions and in, in our lives. Well, as we saw last week in the 11th chapter of Luke's gospel, Jesus says to his followers about how much God loves to pour out good gifts on them. And he says, if you who are evil as parents know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your Father in heaven want to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And you see in those words that Jesus has combined the giving of the Holy Spirit with prayer. And I think if there's anything we can do humanly to invite the Holy Spirit into our lives, prepare ourselves for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, it will come through prayer. And this is why we are emphasizing prayer over the course of of this whole fall. We want to become, as individuals and corporately as a group of believers, people who pray. People who are enamored with prayer. Because we believe it leads us to the heart of God. And there are many things about, about prayer, many facets to this, this, this diamond we call prayer that we could talk about. And over the course of the next few Sundays, we're going we're gonna to address some of those. And today I want us to think about some of the things that might be hindering our prayers. Some things that might be roadblocks or obstacles to us being the people of prayer that we believe God wants us to be and that we want to be. There are many things throughout pages of Scripture that speak to us about things that that are hindrances to our prayers. One of them is found in the 66th Psalm that we read a few moments ago. And it tells us that our prayers are hindered when we harbor unconfessed sin in our lives. Now, that doesn't mean that if we sin, God will not hear our prayers. If that were the case, I'm not sure God would hear any of our prayers. Nor does it mean that you have to reach some special level of holiness before God will hear your prayer. God is merciful and gracious to us where we are. And the reality of life is that we all wrestle with sin. And we hope and we pray that we have... We have a better grip on overcoming sin now than we did, and that we will than we do. But We're all going to wrestle with sin. But at some point, our sin should, should become appalling to us, not invigorating to us. Our sin should shame us, not empower us. It should wound us, not support us. We ought to be outraged by our sin, not satisfied with our sin. We to be terrified by our sin, not comforted by our sin. We should view our sin as something that alarms us, not as something that emboldens us. And this is what the psalmist is declaring. In the 18th verse, he says, If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. The message says, If I had been cozy with evil, the Lord would not have listened. New Living Translation, If I had not confessed the sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And the good news, if I had ignored my sins, the Lord would not have listened to me. It's that hanging on to it, cozying up to it, acting as though it doesn't matter. That's the sin that blocks our prayers. Isaiah 59 tells us that the problem with our prayers is not that God is unable to do what we ask, Isaiah says, surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. It's not a problem with God being able to do it. The problem is us. Our sin has separated us from God and shut off his ears to us. As he goes on to say, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you, so he will not hear. And if we harbor that sin, then we are in a sense implying that the sin is more important to us than God is. Richard Foster says that our sin causes us to become nearsighted to seeing God and to develop thickened eardrums to hearing God. So when God tells us, for example, to to do something for our neighbor... With whom we have difficulty. And we ponder that and say, No, I don't think I'm going to do that. We've now created disobedience. And God prompts us again and we say, No, I don't think I want to do that. That person hurt me. I don't want to have anything to do with them. And God keeps prompting us and we keep saying no until eventually we begin to think it doesn't matter. God doesn't care. What difference does it make? I got away with it. And what we don't realize is that God does care. We didn't get away with it. Because while the situation in our eyes hasn't changed, our ears hear a little less clearly. Our eyes see a little less clearly. And we've created an obstacle in our prayers. And God is saying to us, let go of those sins. Don't cling to them. They're going to harm you anyway. and They, they harm your prayers. But our prayers are hindered not, hindered not only because of, of the unconfessed sin in our lives, but also our prayers are hindered when we mistreat those who are close to us chapter 3, verse 7 of his first letter, Peter writes, after talking to wives, he says, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you in the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Now, there's all kinds of things in that passage that we could talk about. And I suspect that some of you may already be putting up defenses as you, as you read what Peter has to say. We don't really have time to get into all of the details of it, but let me just say this. I think Peter's point is to reiterate what Scripture has said in the Old Testament and the New Testament and what Jesus himself says, that men and women in Christ are equals. And that the call on us is not to figure out how much authority can I wield over my spouse. The question is, how much can I sacrifice for my spouse? Peter's trying to get wives to treat their husbands with love and respect and he's writing to, so that husbands will treat their wives with love and respect. And he writes that because he knows that husbands and wives tend to be selfish. And we tend to, to want to get our own way and we manipulate each other to get our own way. We manipulate situations to get our own way. And Peter says that kind of mindset a mindset that's inconsiderate of your spouse, disrespectful of your spouse, it not only is going to poison your marital relationship, it's going to be toxic to your prayer life. If you aren't right with the person who's closest to you, how can you be right with God? If you're looking at the person closest to you and thinking, How can I get them to do things for me? How can I manipulate things to get what I want? What would make us think that we would treat God any differently? And So Peter says, it's a startling thing, but he says at the end of verse 7, if you don't treat your wife appropriately, with consideration and respect, prayers are going to be hindered. And I don't think we always put that kind of thing together. Because we're so good at at compartmentalizing our lives. Well, that's my relationship. This is my spiritual life. And God says, no, it doesn't work that way. You're a whole being. It's all connected. But it's not just about husbands and wives. It's about all of our close relationships. You move on to the next verses in chapter 3. Chapter 3. And Peter says to all of us, finally, all of you, be like-minded. Be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to this you recall so that you may inherit a blessing. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. In chapter 4, we read earlier, Peter writes, The end of all things is near, therefore be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray and, above all, love each other deeply. Offer hospitality without grumbling. Serve others so you can pray. Our relationships with other people are imperative to our relationship with God. Now, does that mean that all of our relationships are going to be perfect? Of course not the desire of our hearts, the willingness of our hearts to do what we can to treat one another with kindness and love and consideration and sacrifice. It has a bearing on our prayer life. If we're not right with one another, we can't be right with God. And if we're not right with God it will begin to erode our relationship with God. Our prayers are affected not only by our treatment of those who are closest to us, but also by how we view people all over the world, those right around us and those in other places of the world, the needy people, the oppressed people. What do we think about justice also has a bearing on our prayers. Our prayers are hindered, says Isaiah when we ignore injustice. In chapter 1, verse 15 of Isaiah's prophecy, he says, "When you spread your out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Why? Because your hands are full of blood. To so wash and make yourselves clean, take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong and learn to do right. Seek justice." Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Sacrificing ourselves for the neediest of the world. Now, we tend to think of, of prayer in the same vein as we tend to think of worship and discipleship. It's something I do in the moment. And then I, I leave it at the church or I leave it at my place of prayer at home. And then I go out to the rest of life. But God keeps telling people that our relationship with him is not compartmentalized. We're whole people, and when Christ is in us, he's in all of us. And the effectiveness of our prayers, like the effectiveness of worship and discipleship, is proven by how we live and think and act when we open our eyes and walk out into the rest of life. God's telling Israel here that because their worship and their prayers aren't causing them to think more like him and act more like him and love more like him and care more like him, then their worship is dead and their prayers are unheard. I'd be surprised if any of us are, are committing overt acts of injustice. But I don't think most of the Israelites were either. And yet they're still held accountable. Are we doing anything to put a dent in the injustice of this world? Do we feel anything for the least of this world, for the outcasts and refugees and those who are most vulnerable who are most often mistreated? Martin Luther King Jr. was right. To ignore evil is to become an accomplice to it. And so was Edmund Burke, who Dr. King loved to quote. All that needs to happen for evil to prevail is that good people do nothing. And God is clear. If we continue to ignore the needs of the innocent and the most vulnerable among us, then expect God to ignore you when you come to pray. One of the great things about the 19th century holiness movement was that it was characterized by a concern and a compassion and action for social justice. Out of that movement was born the Salvation Army, most of the inner city missions in our world. Homes for unwed mothers who were in that day and time were ostracized from society Medical missions, orphanages, street ministry, all of these were born out of this movement that was most famous for prayer and holy living. Unfortunately, the next generation kept the form of prayer, but ignored the action toward people in need. And it's no wonder then that this movement became known for its unbending, unkind, uncaring, insulated legalism. That's what happens when you separate prayer and holiness from caring about people in need, you get legalism. The scriptures continually link justice and compassion and prayer. In fact, intercession is impossible until we begin to allow the things that break God's heart to break our heart. So God says to the prophet Amos, I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I don't want anything to do with your religious projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. Do you know what I want, says God? I want justice, oceans of it. I want fairness, rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all I want. And turning that warning around, Isaiah declares, if you're generous with the hungry, start giving yourselves to the down and out. Your lives will begin to glow in the darkness. Your shadowed lives will be bathed in sunlight. It's not our job to save the planet. That's why Jesus came. We're called to be God's redeeming presence in this world. We don't have to do everything. We don't have to solve every problem, fix everyone's life, change every evil practice. But we are called to care and to be concerned enough to do something. A cup of cold water, a loaf of bread, a change of clothes, a visit to a prison. Things that reveal the compassion and the concern in our hearts for the people who are most vulnerable, most needy, for those who are ostracized, most innocent. And I think as we begin to pray, as we begin to act, God will open our eyes more and more to the needs of the world. And he may call us to do more and more for his world. But whatever the task, doesn't justice matter to us? Are we asking God when we see it, what do you want me to do? If you want to know if you're on the right track with your prayers, don't think so much about the time when you pray, Think about how you live when you're finished praying. Think about how you live when you're finished praying. And perhaps our prayers are most hindered simply because we don't pray. Our prayers are most hindered because we're hesitant to ask as God commands. In his direct way, James simply says, You don't have because you don't ask. And I know that sounds simple, but our, too often our prayers are hindered because we simply don't take time to pray. We allow the busyness of life to overwhelm us. We think we, we, we don't know what to pray, we don't know how to pray, we have a lot of excuses. And then we wonder why we don't have the same kind of, of spirit, the same kind of spiritual fervor as others. You know God is delighted when we come to him with our prayers. And there are some people who believe that petitions are the lowest, the basest form of prayer, and that the really spiritual people have moved past the need to ask God for things. They spend their time in adoration and praise. And asking of God is, well, that's for immature Christians. Nothing could be further from the truth. Richard Foster calls it false spirituality. Because when you read the scriptures, people ask. The words, both in Greek and Hebrew, that are most often translated for prayer mean to request, to make a petition. God loves it when we ask of him. He loves it when we bring our concerns to him. I think there are probably a couple of reasons why we neglect to pray. I think sometimes we overestimate ourselves. We give ourselves a lot more credit for how much spiritual power we have to to accomplish the things that come to us in life. In many ways, too many Christians are practicing atheists. When a problem arises, our first response isn't, I better turn to God in prayer. It's, what can I do to solve this? And the flip side of that, I think the other reason we tend to neglect prayer and to ask of God is we underestimate God. Somehow it's gotten into our minds that it's okay to ask God for the big things, but the small things aren't that important to God, and we should just handle those. And that there's something wrong with Asking. We bought into the into the the lie, the heresy that people have promoted that asking is, is a sign of immaturity. Not at all. It's a sign of dependence on God. And the closer you get to God, the more you realize how much you need Him and how wonderful it is to be dependent on Him. God wants us to come to Him with everything in our lives. Because he cares more about everything in our lives than we do. And to say that he doesn't is heresy. Jesus says to his disciples, he begs them, come, ask, seek, knock. The Father loves to give. Think about your own children or grandchildren or a niece or a nephew or a child that you're close to. I mean, we love hearing about the things in their lives. In fact, one of the great frustrations of parenthood is trying to pry that stuff out of our children. And you remember as a child how hard it was when your parents were trying to pry it out of you. You didn't want to talk. In our home, we, especially when the kids were younger, we played what we called a supper game. And it was quite a creative name because it was a game we played while sitting around the supper table. But... And it was a game where everybody had to make three statements about something that happened that day. The trick is that two of them were false and one of them was true. And everyone had to guess which of the statements was true. And then we would talk about that and and it was just a discussion starter. And, you know, it it really helped our discussion and maybe a serendipitous part of it is you teach your children how to be good liars too. But that's a whole other thing that we get to later. And, and Jesus says, if, if you parents who are evil want to know about your children's lives, how much more your father in heaven. As we think about how we combat our neglect of prayer and the hindrances to prayer, this is why we're, we're moving in this prayer emphasis throughout this fall. Because we want to do everything in our power as a church to help all of us individually and corporately become people who pray. And more and more are seeing God and desiring of God to break down those barriers, those obstacles, those hindrances to our prayers. This prayer emphasis is actually, honestly, it's a major step of corporate faith. Because it's going to culminate on November 1st as we begin three weeks of 24 hours a day, seven days a week prayer. Now, it hasn't been lost on me that that's 504 hours. And people will sign up, hopefully you, and we're in in the process now of of developing a a couple of rooms downstairs that will become prayer rooms. Help us to pray in a variety of settings. And we'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. But I believe that joining our hearts together in prayer, in this kind of faith-stretching way, can begin to break down the barriers and the hindrances to prayer. And to allow God to do something significant in us as individuals and in us as the people of God in this place. We want this prayer room to be a holy place so that when we leave it, we see God 20, the other 23 hours a day creating holy places. We want to spend an hour in prayer so that when we leave that place, we live the other 23 hours a day in that same spirit of prayer. Dependent on our loving Father who loves to pour out upon us his good gifts. I don't know what you may be sensing is a hindrance to your prayer life. Maybe it's one of these, maybe it's something else. But God wants to help you remove it. He wants to take it away, tear it down, so that the flow of his spirit is no longer blocked. And he can do in you and in me what he wants to do. In this next moment of silence, let's listen to God with an openness of spirit about what he may say to us about the hindrances to our life of prayer. And let us open our hearts and let him do his work in this moment. Holy Father, give us a new glimpse of your love for us and the desires you have for us that we might willingly ask you to begin breaking down those barriers, the hindrances between us and you. That you might make us the people you created us to be. Through the grace of Jesus Christ. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.